If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like or do or think about, just not sports. On today's show, we have a really fascinating interview with ringer, writer, and podcaster, and of course, the famed walk-on at Ohio State during the 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 glory the glory years of the Fad Mata era, uh, Mark Titus. And uh, Mark is a really jovial guy. He's a fun guy. But we actually kind of took a turn on a, a a pretty serious subject. We wanted to talk about mental health in sports, and it's a really expansive conversation. We talk about his own personal battle with depression, which he expands greatly on um, from what you might have read. Uh, and or, or heard about a couple years ago when he first talked about it. And then we talk a little bit more about what college and pro teams can do to address mental health in sports. It's a really fascinating and candid interview. We, we, we guarantee uh, you guys will, will find it illuminating. And uh, as Mark says, uh, we try not to get too serious, too, so there's definitely some lighthearted moments as well. All right, before then, let's do some introductions. I'm Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago, and on the phone with me, he is a shot caller, a b-baller, and a guy who lost a bet on a women's soccer professional uh, game yesterday to my four-year-old daughter. He's Adam Millard. Adam, did you pay my daughter Charlie yet? Because she breaks knees, buddy. Uh, we never, we never shook on it. She, uh, without a handshake, it's not official. Uh, Adam, I posted on Twitter yesterday a picture of you shaking my daughter's hand. Just so, just so you're aware, you are in in uh, tough legal legal situation on that one, champ. I believe <laughs> that was a sign of affection, but there are witnesses who would say she never shook on the bet. That was more <laughs> well, of we... a yeah. I'm sorry. I don't I'm not even so. sure you guys bet yeah. anything. I just know she at some point we so we were we were guests of the uh, Chicago Red Stars, the professional team. Um, in the NWSL here in Chicago, and uh, we went out to the game. It was a great game. Alex Morgan playing for Orlando, and and Kristen Press and and, and the Red Stars um, playing. It. And my daughter was having a great time. It's her first time at at, at a women's soccer game, and and Adam decides he's going to troll her by saying that he's rooting for the uh, the road team. And so they made a bet. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not, Adam. I'm not even sure she's familiar with the concept of money yet. That's that good for me. It yeah, works out well for me, for doesn't it? <laughs> I'll con- I'll con- I'll contribute to the college fund. Um, my daughter is five; she's in kindergarten, and this year for Mother's Day, all the kids had to like you do that sheet where it's like my mom is her name is blah blah blah. She does this, she does that, and then one of the girls who's her friend in her class, it said for work, my mommy, and she just wrote gets money. <laughs> So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Get money. Uh, by the way, the voice on the uh, the other mic who never waits for his introduction. It's seven time Emmy winning sports producer Gareth Hughes in Brooklyn. Gareth, uh, buy any records this week? 
Didn't buy any records. I You might have seen this photo on our Twitter account, though. Uh, my wife and I were at my in-laws after a vacation. And we were going through the closet, and we found an old box of our CDs. So I dug back into some physical media that I had probably not looked at since the early 2000s and pulled out. At one point, my wife was going through the box, and she turned to me, and she just goes, Dude, two Blues Traveler CDs? Um, so that was a wow. solid moment. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, I know everyone owned the first one, right? The, the, the like the neon green one with the cat on it. And it had, uh, their, their famous, it had their a famous hook two on songs, it, yeah. but the, the, the subsequent blues traveler CD is, is, is questionable. But back then, if their first album was good, you usually gave a run at the second. Most of those CDs are left back in Massachusetts in my in-laws house. But I pulled out the Nine Inch Nail CDs and listened to the Broken EP yesterday. And some of it does not sound quite as fresh, and other parts of it are still pretty freaking awesome. We listened to it in the car. My kids did have headphones on. I want you to know that. But keep in mind, it's an EP, right? So we got through six songs, and Amy turns to me and just said, I think I'm about done with this. I said, well, that's good news because it ends now. So there you go. I did not buy any records, but I was listening. There's an NPR podcast called Planet Money, um, and mm-hmm. I don't usually listen to it, but, and this will excite you, Brad, they did a half-hour special on the Starbury brand, uh, talking about oh. the the idea of a uh, all-star having a brand, uh that was uh, available for $15. So after listening to the podcast, I was inspired to revisit the Starbury website. They are making a limited run, and they plan to build two flagship stores, one uh, in New York, one in Beijing. But I got myself a new pair of Starburys yesterday. You did? Like, you can buy them now again? You can buy brand new Starburys. They exist. There, there was only I had to go because I'm a size uh, 14 can squeeze into a 13. Uh, <laughs> so I only found one pair uh, that they had left in my size, but they're they're good looking, and so I will have that to contribute to our Twitter and Instagram uh, handles as soon as they come in. Bro, I got a birthday coming up. Just saying. I, I buy you a fifteen dollar awesome. pair of shoes for your birthday. Sure, ten and yeah. a half. I only, uh, mm-hmm. I only will wear the Knicks colored uh, version from uh, from they back in the day. The one I I, I stupidly threw out because my wife was like, "You ne- you'll never wear these again." Little did she know we would start this show. <laughs> I'd be wearing them every time. <laughs> <I came. laughs> it's well, it's they don't. They no longer have Knicks colors, but I I go on eBay. Yeah, buying shoes other people wore is just not my bag. I think you'd know this about Really? Me. A little yeah. disinfectant, you'd be fine. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of uh, of starting this show, why don't we right now take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything around the culture of sports is uh, fair game on the table. Guys, I want to start with some topical news. Comic-Con going on. We're taping this on a Sunday. Comic-Con going on right now. And I had an interesting back and forth on Twitter. I don't know if you saw this. A couple weeks ago, Becky Sauerbrunn from the uh, U.S. Women's National Soccer Team and um, FC Kansas City 
uh, she came on and talked about her love of sci-fi and fantasy. And she really said, like, among the top of her pop culture, uh, you know, all-time list is the novel Ready Player One. And the trailer dropped yesterday. So I hit her up. I'm like, Becky, the world is, wants to know, like, what do you think of the trailer? And, and she got, she opened up and she's like, look, it wasn't my vision. Uh, Spielberg <laughs> did not share my vision for what the online kind of Matrix-esque uh, oasis uh, is what it's called, uh, what what that community is supposed to look like. And I, I hopped right back in. I was like, I completely agree. It looked hyper-realistic, uh, not so much like old-school video game, which is always the way I pictured it. Uh, so we had a little bit of back and forth. Lots of fans jumped in, um, you know, liking her tweets. So I just want to say, Becky, I am sorry that the first trailer was a bit of a dud. Uh, but, hey, let's uh, let's remain hopeful that the movie, uh, uh, you know, does a Rogue One, you know, kind of like pulls itself up and, uh, and, uh, and, and comes through. I remember you talking to me about it as just sort of, bro, this is uber pop culture writ large. <laughs> Let me say this about the book, because the tide has turned on this thing. I think for years, like when it first came out, it was sort of hailed as this geek, you know, um, geek uh, celebration of, of 80s pop culture. And since then, I think people have poked holes in, hey, it's not the most, it's not super original. It's not the most um, well-drawn characters, all this other stuff. But I got to say, like, it's okay for things to be mediocre and just enjoyable. Like, I'm not going to destroy a, what is essentially a young adult novel that, that aims its uh, lens a little <laughs> bit older to get our generation in, invested in it. I mean, if, if the thing's just disposable and fine, well, so is Flight of the Navigator and half the crap that they talk about in the book. So, like, just fine. It's pop culture. It doesn't have to be high art. It's one of those things that I think that as comic book movies have gotten more and more serious and self-serious, we keep mistaking pop culture for high art. And some of it can just be a movie that you watch for about two hours while eating popcorn and then immediately forget about. Uh, Adam, wide open, man. What do you want to talk about? Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather and not the fight of the century fight in about a month on August 26th. Uh, There's been various reports on what each of them will get paid, but it's estimated to be a lot. Let's say a hundred million each. This is going to be a terrible fight. I think people forget that uh, (laughs) Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao was a terrible fight because Mayweather is a defensive fighter and a counterpuncher. But now you throw an MMA guy in the ring who is used to having an arsenal of tricks and is limited to hands. Uh, Two things make me upset about this. One, that it's happening at all and making a mockery of the sport of boxing. And what makes me most mad is I will pay the $100 to get this fight. As far as the cash grab and why the hell you're buying this, I refer, there was a tweet that somebody sent out that was basically like, the Mayweather-McGregor fight is going to answer the age-old question of who is the greatest boxer, a professional boxer or another guy? So (laughs) that's pretty much how I feel about that as far as cash grab and actual sport value. 
I, I would just say I'm struggling to think about another thing that was so stunty, but that is be is is being treated like a real sport. Usually, things that are hyper stunty are sort of put in a box, and and people just say, "Sure, that's happening," but like no one has to care. When I think of this what? fight, I think of something that Brad Burke said once: "Who am I rooting for in this game? Injuries." You know, like this is a fight to root for injuries. Like, I hope they both knock each other out in the most horrific fashion in the third most least or like fourth least interesting round. Spend a month in a coma and it's all collectively wiped from our imaginations. They can cash their checks. They can recover. But I hope that it inflicts maximum pain for minimum entertainment value. There are no winners here. I just want to, I just want to see Connor back in the UFC where he belongs. Now, if this was an MMA match, same thing would happen on the other side. It'd be over in literally two minutes. McGregor would would take him down and submit him, but we have to watch these two box. Yeah, it seems like a pretty pathetic spectacle. I'm not quite sure why the media is treating this like it's a real thing, but. Everybody, look, everybody makes money off this garbage, so the charade continues. Unless I'm proved wrong and, and McGregor looks great. But I just feel like Floyd's got a reputation of just standing around and not wanting to really take any punishment or take any chances. And I just don't see him doing – I don't see him, like, coming out, like, trying to make this Hearns Hagler and, and, and have a signature knockout. I just see him standing there and then going and cashing his money. So, whatever. Yeah, he's, got everything, he's got everything to lose. It will be a boring fight. Yawn. All right, Gareth, wide open. What do you want to talk about? We talked about this earlier. Uh, Kyrie Irving has requested a trade uh, from the Cleveland Cavaliers. There's a fascinating piece on ESPN.com today about the behind the scenes uh, dynamics of that and his frustration with the team over the years. And I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, I can understand how he's kind of like, he. If LeBron James leaves in a year, it's not exactly Kyrie's dream to carry the Cleveland Cavaliers. So I can understand why he wants to go somewhere where he can be the man. But as I threw it out, Brad pointed out that Batman himself, Ben Affleck, is also requesting a trade out of the DC comic Batman role. So are there... He denied denied this at Comic-Con, but continue... You know what? I'll believe it when I see it. He's already dropped out of directing one of these movies. He's been in a couple. I think he's ready to move on. So what if we traded Kyrie to DC to be Batman and Ben Affleck to the Cleveland Cavaliers to be their point guard? Better hey, than I've Deli. Still to... better than Deladova. I've That's al- all i got to say. <laughs> I've I've always wanted either a black Batman or a black James Bond, so I will take it. And Adam, I've always wanted a a, a white point guard. Does that make me racist? (laughs) (laughs) John Stockton. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, it's going to be tough to top, though. Um, Are there any other sport to pop culture trades we could make at this point? I'm having a hard time honestly thinking of... Uh, stars and pop culture figures who are wanting out of franchises that badly. Although Daniel Craig, who also just re-upped with James Bond, uh, was talking for years 
about wanting out of that. Could Kyrie play James Bond and Daniel Craig run the point? Um, or is there another athlete who needs to be traded who could play Bond? Here, I got one for you. So TJ Miller was like, you know, scorched earth, uh, you know, rip job on the way out of Silicon Valley. Why not trade him for Andre Iguodala, who's super, you know, same city, you know, super involved in the tech industry. And uh, if the Warriors can win with TJ being their sixth man, best team ever. Debates, debate is done. That's I think they could win with him being their sixth man. Yeah, oh, yeah. The uh-huh. NPA is, ter- uh-huh. is terrible besides them. <laughs> uh, guys, I think we're overlooking the obvious. Tom Brady uh, trades straight up for Giselle. She knows a lot about football, apparently. Wow. That's like in their prime star, one for one. I love it. No draft picks, yeah, no compensation. Straight up. Well, I think I think the Pats would probably still win. I mean, Brady's kind of a system quarterback, right? <laughs> she could be a game manager. <laughs> Do we get I just wanted to throw that I don't believe that. I just wanted to throw that out there to see every every Boston person listening to this like veer off the road and enraged. Just like what? <laughs> Wide open. I want to throw something out there real quick. Um, I've got some OJ thoughts, but I'll save them for distractions after the uh, Mark Titus interview. Real quick, I saw Mike Gundy, the Oklahoma State football coach, who famously has has really sort of owned rocking a mullet of late uh, the last <laughs> few years, and he finally kind of said that he thinks it's worth a lot in social media branding and earned media, you know, coverage. Adam, uh, I had a whole new appreciation for the mullet for him kind of saying that it improves ROI <laughs> for the program's PR. Any thoughts on this? You've got me off guard here. Um, Did he actually say well, earned media? It... He just said it's worth millions of dollars in exposure. That, like, people weren't putting OSU on the map, and then he started growing the mullet. But I don't remember the mullet being a thing that was, like, defining him in the early part of well, his career. I feel like it's really gotten kicked up in the last few years as he started to, like, well, wear it he, more and more ridiculously. Has he – does he mean his his own social media presence? Like, his, is he more comfortable being a marketer now that he has a signature style? Because I say prove it. I think no. I think it's I like a lot of media cover his mullet in, in an ironic fashion, as like a check out how outrageous it looks at media day, or watch it like here, and he just thinks it's funny. Is it good exposure for your program, or is it just a distraction for your program? Is it leading to them talking more about the team, or are they just talking about you? Not all good. Not all publicity is good publicity, and. Getting your mullet covered doesn't necessarily mean that your team has more exposure. It just means that you're a spectacle. How dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> you're you're going to say that this guy having an interesting hairstyle is a distraction on this show? <laughs> on this show, Adam? Well, we, we talk about distractions and having hobbies or something off the field that uh, leads to great personal development. I'm not sure uh, being covered, having your team covered because you were sporting a mullet is a good thing for your program. Are we having like the reverse racism Mike Vick, Colin Kaepernick debate now where you're telling 
a white guy not to wear a mullet because it distracts from him from the program and it undercuts his credibility and public image. No, the, no. The only difference I, I, there is that one is employed and the other one is decidedly <laughs> unemployed. No, I'm simply arguing his point that is your team really getting coverage or is your mullet getting coverage? Is it truly putting your team on the map because you have a mullet? It's putting your mullet on the map, and there are a lot of bad ones out there. Well, Adam, I think what it boils down to is it's team in front and uh, mullet in back. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Um, with that said, time to, time to move on. We'll be back after our interview with distractions, but before we go – you know, again, a little bit different tone of the interview, but it's not going to be, you know, super down in the dumps. Mark is a, is a really um, interesting, thoughtful, uh, you know, person who played in big time athletic programs and now has gone on to great success at the Ringer. Uh, you might remember him from Grantland when he was there, and uh, he's also a guy who can talk pretty comfortably and casually, and at times in a lighthearted way about his own battle with mental health. Uh, we have talked a lot about athletes' mental health on this show. And we think it's important to revisit this conversation with people who have authentic and credible stories to tell and want to share their experience. We've done it with Jay Williams. Uh, you know, we, we talked about it with some other folks. So I think it's a really interesting, illuminating take of how someone who, you know, seemingly is 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 enjoying a ton of positive attention can still be uh, having a, a private battle uh, with depression and mental health and how everyone around the sports world could stand to, uh, you know, just be on the lookout for it and be ready to listen to people when they want to share their experiences. I thought he was incredibly honest. I think he said, quite honestly, he didn't want to become the poster child for depression, but I've heard him and other people like Tim Ferriss say the same thing, that they were glad that they were able to talk about it if it helped a couple of people out. So... Um, as someone who has dealt with depression myself, uh, I picked up some good tips for him, from him, and I think our listeners will really enjoy it. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to go to Mark right now, and when we come back, we'll lead you out with some distractions. Stick around. I want to start with, like, just I think – mental health in sports is is such an important part of it and we always talk about the mental side of athletics when, when it comes to an athlete's performance and then I feel like very quickly certain topics around mental health can become taboo once you start talking about mental health away from the game do you, do you feel like that's a fair assessment and as someone who has been both in big-time athletics and in the media how do you feel like we talk at large about mental health in sports? I think everybody's terrible at it. Um, I think <laughs> those who, if I'm being honest, like I think those who don't really understand um, like what depression and anxiety are, um, kind of jump to conclusions. And um, I know the popular thing is like just snap out of it. You get a lot of that when you go through stuff. And like I don't understand what, what, what do you have to be sad about? Like you have so much going for you in your life and all that kind of stuff. But then I think I think the other side is bad too. I think like 
the people who have the mental illness, and I'm I'm certainly speaking from experience, so I'm, I kind of include myself in this group. Is we don't do a good enough job. We we, we do like we kind of lash out too much as a collective of um, mm-hmm. of of saying like you don't understand what I'm going through when people have great intentions and they're trying to understand what you're going through. Um, it's not helpful for you to be like, you just don't get it, man. And just say that over and over because you're shutting out so many people that want to help you. And they, they just, they don't, it's true. They don't get it. And they're, they're, but they're trying to help. And um, I think that's kind of destructive as well. So uh, I mean, in, in all honesty, I feel like everybody kind of sucks at it. And, and, and you, and you worry about <laughs> sort of offending people. I find like I'm I'm talking right now. I, I guarantee you there's gonna be someone that listens to this and is gonna be like, I don't like the way you were talking about that. That was, you know, you're kind of, um, I don't even know what the word would be. You're you're, you're dehumanizing those of us with mental. I don't know. There's like this whole thing, this whole aura. Right. As soon as you start talking about it, you're now talking about it wrong, and then it makes people not want to talk about it at all. And then that just kind of snowballs, and we get to a point where no one has any idea what the hell they're saying. And um, that's kind of my stance on it. Which is why, by the way. I, I don't really love talking about it, and obviously we, I agree to talk about it with you guys, um, but it, just in general, in my personal life, it's not something I really love to talk about for, for those reasons. Right. I, I think the interesting thing about depression, too, is no two depressions look the same, so it's hard to talk about, it's hard to talk about it as a blanket uh, disease because my experience with depression and I have experienced it pretty severely, I'm sure is different than yours. And therefore the treatments are different. I think that's why mental health professionals have one of the most challenging jobs in the country. Cause it's really hard to diagnose exactly what's going on and what is biological, what is uh, brought on by trauma. Do you, do you find that it's really hard to explain to people? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's really, I mean, that's what um so to give a little backstory and, I, and you guys might already know this but maybe the listeners don't um i kind of got thrust into the mental health world publicly um when i did a reddit ama a couple years ago um and so I, I was i was doing something on uh college basketball and it was conference it was a uh, conference tournament time and i was in kansas city for the big 12 tournament and i was bored in my hotel room waiting for the games to come around so i could go to them and um I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to get on Reddit and just answer some questions about basketball. And somebody asked me, uh, you bring, they're like, you bring a lot of joy to my life with your writing, but I was just curious what makes you happy. And I just kind of like felt like in the moment I was caught up. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to be honest. What makes me happy is everything because I've been depressed for a very long time and I kind of feel like I'm coming out of my shell with that. Um, so I kind of like made my, my story public then. And the response was overwhelming, and people were like, oh, my God, you're such a hero. And I'm like, what? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm just a guy, you know, like in a hotel room. <laughs> right. I was just, you know, doing a Reddit thing. And it was cool at first because I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't think about it this way. That Like there are other people who, who are going through this, and they might, you know, be inspired or whatever. But that quickly turned to, like, people seeking advice from me. And mm. I, I, I very much want to help because that's kind of um, – I know this is like a self-serving thing to say, but like I, I kind of view myself as a helper and like I want to fix things and like help people. And that's kind of what I think I've been called to do on this world. Um, so my, my first instinct was like, okay, I'm going to help these people. They're sending like, you know, I'm getting these emails. I'm like, dude, thank you for opening up. I'm depressed too. How did you, how did you do it? How did you get over this? And it became overwhelming because like you said, like I, 
I don't know. I can't, I, I don't know what your depression looks like. I know how I did it. Here's how I did it. Um, but that doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And I'm sorry to say that, but like, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm just a guy who kind of experienced this and found the thing that worked for me. Um, so that became kind of a trip and like, I, and then I stopped kind of responding to him and, and it, it kind of drug me back down to like, am I, you know, are, are these people getting worse because I'm not reaching out? Like they, they, it's so hard when you're going through this to like reach out to somebody, these people became brave enough to reach out to me. And then I'm now I'm not responding. Does that make me a bad person? And it just became this whole trip. And, and I don't know, I like talked to my friends and family about it and they're like, dude, you just got to step away. And, and they, they started dropping little, uh, um, sayings like you don't have to, to keep everyone else warm by setting yourself on fire and all that kind of stuff. So, um, anyway, but, but to get back to the larger point of like, yeah, every depression is different and every mental illness is different. And, and I just didn't feel comfortable saying, Hey, here's the cure. Just do this just because it worked for me. Cause there's no way that's, you know, I can guarantee that that's going to happen for everyone else. So, I, you know, first of all, or to our listeners, the the AMA that you did is still online. It's 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 relatively easy to find if they want to go get like a a more thorough breakdown of your specific story. There's only a few questions I want to I want to ask you just about your experiences. You 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 were pretty candid that it started in high school, um, and yeah. I'm really fascinated because you you know you you wound up going to you 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 know you were a highly um uh you know I would say. Uh, you know, sought after or, or, or star player on your high school team. You go to um, Ohio State. You're on a Final Four caliber program, and you become a media darling. You know, I, I still remember the first time. <laughs> I still remember the first time I heard you on on the old BS report. Um, I think yeah. you were still in college. You were just about to graduate. Oh yeah. And, oh, and yeah. I'm just wondering, how, did you have to actively hide? Um, you know what you were going through or did you find oh, it yeah. was subsiding like how did you handle all that all those things you were doing and the way you were feeling oh i i i handled it very poorly um i, I yeah <laughs> i was i was very bad i mean to get i'll get morbid for like a quick second and then we'll go back like i don't i don't want to turn this into a super depressing thing for people to listen to or anything but um like the, i'll never forget there was a day that i i i came home, I, I spent like, I, I lived by myself, which is a problem. So I went to Ohio State with Greg Oden and Mike Conley. Um, Daquan Cook, I played AAU with. We weren't super, Daquan and I weren't super close, but I was pretty close with Mike and Greg. Um, and they were like the only two reasons I went to Ohio State. I never even visited the campus before I got there. Um, so like I talked to the coaches, the basketball coaches, as they were recruiting Mike and Greg, they were like, hey, you should come be a manager. Um, so I had like kind of a rapport with them a little. They, they were like recruiting Mike and Greg threw me kind of, um, it was like this whole <laughs> weird thing, but, um, those are the only two guys I knew. So I was like, yeah, I'll go to Ohio State. It's fun. My freshman year was amazing. We went to the final four. I was with my friends. Uh, it was everything I hoped it would be. Then that sophomore year comes around. I move out of the dorms and live by myself off campus and Mike and Greg had gone to the NBA. So, I mean, I still had my teammates and I kind of knew them well enough, but I, I felt so isolated and I'll never forget. Uh, there was one night that, on a Friday night that I, I basically, it got so bad that I put a belt around my neck and I, I, I had no intention oh, of wow. taking my own life. I never was going to take my own life, uh, but I just like felt compelled to do it. And I put a belt around my neck and I, I started pulling on it just to see what it would feel like. And then I stopped and just like collapsed onto the floor and started sobbing. 
ended up falling asleep on the floor, woke up at like 9 a.m. the next morning and went to practice and started cutting jokes in the locker room and, and trying to be like this fun-loving guy and all that kind of stuff. And it, it was never really like, that wasn't like a regular thing, but that was, that kind of gives you an idea of what my life was like. Um, and yeah, I don't mean to, you know, like we, we can, we can have fun with this interview and, and go back. No, no, but let me ask you that. I'm because sorry to bring that up, but, I think it's but yeah, that, that was kind of like what it was like. Yeah, no, real quick to interject there, because this is another thing, too. I think sometimes the way people talk about depression um, or anxiety or any kind of mental illness can freak people out. But to Adam's yeah. point about everyone's mental illness being different, I, I mean, like my mom battled depression in the 80s, and she um, she's very stoic about it, whereas other people are quite candid about it. And I think... To, like that might be your style, but do you find that people will wig out if you're just kind of like joke, casually either joking around or, or, yeah. or mentioning it as a side? Like, oh yeah, I contemplated suicide and I got this far with it. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously like a defense mechanism for me, and that's what that's why I started my my blog in the first place, where I made fun of myself for not playing basketball, is because that was kind of a a blow to my ego to to come to Ohio State and sit on the bench after I'd been a star player in high school, um, and I think that that was just kind of my personality has been it has has pretty much come from that all of my insecurities growing up and and going to college and trying to find my place in the world and i thought if i can just make people laugh then they won't get to know the real me they'll get to know this fun loving me and then that way they won't get to see all my flaws and all that kind of stuff and that was kind of been my attitude all along and now um i mean now I'm in a great spot, and like I don't care if people know my flaws and stuff. But thankfully, like the fun-loving personality stuck around, so that's cool. But um, that was definitely like a strategy that I had, um, and not a lot of people knew that. And that, and I think that's true, by the way, of a lot of people. And, and you, you hear stories of like stand-up comedians who are miserable, and, um, and and some of the funniest people. I mean, the example that always sticks out to me was was at the time Robin Williams, and I think since then. Um, mm-hmm. There's been some other stuff that he's, you know, maybe it wasn't quite like depression. That was, you know, I, I think like there have been reports like dementia played a part in all that kind of stuff too. But um, you just hear stories about about guys who you're like, man, he just seems like the funnest guy. Like why why what, why was he so miserable? He did a great job of hiding it. And I think it, it, it for me at least that was kind of how it worked. It was like, well, this is just a defense mechanism, so you wouldn't get to see the real me. So. So when you, when obviously you you had basketball to fall back on, um, and your and your teammates that were a good support system, even though they didn't they probably you didn't consciously talk to them or openly talk to them about your depression. Did you find that once your playing days were done, that's when it became much harder? Oh yeah, yeah. So I. I the reason it's taken me, it took me so long to kind of come out with it and all that kind of stuff, which it, it still seems weird that like I, like people treat me like I was quote unquote coming out or whatever. Like it was no, the, the only reason I had like the courage to tell my story is because I felt like the worst was behind me. I mean, what's, what's really courageous is when you're at the bottom of the pit and you're just, you know, you're at, you're at rock bottom and then you tell everyone that you're at rock bottom. Um, to me, that's, that takes courage and that's courageous uh, for, for me to kind of tell you what I had been through. Um, you know, that's not really courageous to me, but uh, anyway, after I got done playing, I, I just didn't know my place in the world. Like I was very much 
someone who thrived off of structure and, and thrived off of um, my whole life. I was told, like, okay, you're in kindergarten. Here's what you do in kindergarten. You go here at this time, and you <laughs> do this at this time. And now you're in first grade. Here's what you do. And you just go through that ladder, and, and, you, and then suddenly you get spit out into the world, and there's no basketball. There's no school. There's no parents. To, I mean, my, my parents are still alive and a part of my life and all that, but they're not – you know, I don't live with them and they're not holding my hand and everything. Um, and I got to figure all this out on my own. And, and that became really bad. And the, the, the one good part about it all though, was I put on like 50, 60 pounds after I got done playing, which makes for some fun pictures to look back on. Now that I've, I've, I've since shed the weight, but, uh, it was funny. Like, yeah, like right after I got done playing, I got, I got pretty big, which is kind of funny to look back on. So. Your Twitter avatar. I still believe your bio says like once and future, uh, fat ass, which I, I always get a chuckle. Yeah. About. Yeah, former and future fat ass. Yeah, like I'm back in shape now, but I know I know it's inevitable. I'm gonna I'm gonna start packing them back on. So there's enough. You talked pretty openly in your AMA about um, being self-aware and feeling like you were yeah. conscious of the prison that you were in, and then the way that you got out of that uh, was to build gradual momentum. So I guess to start, how scary was it to be? completely conscious and, and, and knowing that you were suffering, but unable to kind of start the process of healing. Uh, and how did you ultimately align around that concept of momentum? Yeah, it's, 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 it's completely horrifying because you feel like a prisoner. That, that's really the only way to describe it. Like you're a prisoner of your own body. You almost feel paralyzed. And that sounds absolutely absurd to people who haven't really experienced it. But um, I would wake up and my mind would be telling me like, dude, let's choose the day. Let's do it. Let's just, you know, let's go get after it. Let's get these chores done. You need to get, get done. Let's do your work and all that kind of stuff. And I just like, I couldn't even get out of bed and I didn't know how to describe it. And then it would start a cycle of self-loathing and, and what is wrong with you and why are you so lazy? And then it just fed upon itself. But, um, it, I think I'm lucky enough in that regard though, is that I could always identify like what I was feeling and what, I could always like observe myself as though I wasn't myself, as though I was kind of like having an out of body thing. And I was watching myself laying in bed every day and going through this. And um, even though I wasn't taking action, I was kind of like formulating a plan in my brain for, for when the day comes that I am going to start getting out of this. Um, I, I'm, I'm formulating a plan for that day. And and so the, the, the thing that I talked about, like you said, was momentum. Uh, the strategy that worked for me was like, I just kept waiting for, these these sparks of inspiration would come along every so often. There'd just be something that would happen, and I would be like, "Okay, today's the day. I'm gonna do it." And then inevitably, it would not be the day. I would try to get out of bed, and like you know, go do something. I would have a list of five things to do. I would get halfway done with the first thing, and then I'd just like crawl back into bed and start crying, and that was it. And, it was, and then you'd have to wait another couple months, and it would, and then all this would happen again. But eventually one of those came and suddenly, I st- you know, that list of five things, I got four of the things done. And I was like, hey, I feel kind of good about that. Like maybe I didn't get it all done, but I got close to it. And then the next day I'd wake up and kind of do the same thing. And I just built on top of that day after day. Um, and, and those little things became bigger things and those bigger things became even bigger things. And then routine started to get established. And that was kind of it. And then along the way, like I, I, I tried medication. Medication wasn't really for me. I know it works for a lot of people. And um, again, this is back to like, you got to find what works for you. Wasn't really for me, but, but talking to, to someone definitely helped talking to uh, um, whatever you want to call them, a shrink, a counselor, a, um, whatever, a, a therapist uh, definitely helped me. And I kind of like massaged out all the insecurities I have. Um, I kind of grew older. I'm, I'm, 
now in my 30s, so, like, I feel like your 20s are kind of that, that time of your life where you're trying to figure out who the hell you are. So I kind of got that behind me now. And uh, I don't know. that there, there was no, like, magic pill that I took uh, that, that kind of fixed everything. It was just... Gradual change. Yeah, it was just gradual change. And, and, and I think what gets misinterpreted by people who read what I wrote is that he's, they thought I was saying, I just suddenly woke up one day and said, okay, I'm going to fix it today. And that's not what I'm saying at all. It definitely does not work like that. Um, it's more that these little things happen in your life where you kind of feel like today is the day I'm going to get over this. And, you know, 99 times in a row, it's not the day. But then when, when that hundredth time comes, you just got to like grab onto it and, and try to ride it out as best you can. And um, that's what I did. And I was lucky enough to, to kind of come out of it alive. Um, so It sounds like what you're saying is you made the decision to be happy. And though that's not a flip of a switch, you, you were committed to the process and you figured out the process that worked best for you. And it's okay to fail. I mean, like it's okay to take like, you know, you take three steps forward and two steps back. That's fine. Um, and, and I think what happens when you go through it enough, you, you start focusing on the two steps back and you're like, Oh great. I'm back to where I was, but you're not. I mean, as long as you keep, and that's kind of like the momentum analogy to me, as long as you keep like overall, you're, you're moving forward just a little bit, no matter how slow it is, uh, someday you're going to look up and be like, man, I've come so far. So, um, that's how it worked for me. I certainly would never, uh, pretend to be a, a professional at this. I would never offer my advice unsolicited to anybody. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of careful with how I talk about it and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that, that's just my testimony, I guess. Uh, yeah. So I was gonna. What I was gonna ask is, did you encounter maybe former teammates along the way who didn't understand it, or was everyone pretty supportive? Because I think we talk a lot about this. The, that mental illness is still um, our mental health is still one of the biggest stigmas in sports. Yeah. That was kind of weird too, was uh, the, the part where a lot of people were apologizing um, retroactively. And I, again, like I know they're coming from a great place and all that, but it made me feel kind of weird because people would be like, dude, I'm so sorry. I didn't do anything for you. If I would have known, I would have. And, and I was like, it, it made me feel bad because I felt like I was putting them in a bad spot now. And I was like, no, dude, you don't have to worry about it. Like I, I, you, I purposely made sure you didn't know that was, that was the whole point. I didn't want you to know. Um, that means I did a great job at what I was trying to do. So, uh, there's just a whole, I don't, I don't know. And that, that, that's, that's, I, I keep, I keep mentioning it, but it just, it, it, it weirded me out. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. I wish I wasn't saying that because I don't, I don't want to discourage other people from kind of, opening it up and seeking help and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if I'm being honest, like that was definitely a very weird position to be in where uh, suddenly that kind of became my identity. And it was like, I, I was the depressed guy and everyone wanted to talk to me about that. And like, they wanted to reevaluate their role in my life. And, and did I do something to lead to your depression? Was that my fault? Was it? And um, I kind of had to do the debriefing with like every relationship I had. And it's like, no, it was none of your fault. You're fine. You know, we're cool. Don't worry about it. Let's just move forward. You, know? so. uh, you mean Evan Turner, uh, the, the, the villain, as you call him, wasn't uh, <laughs> consistently apologizing for all of his, uh, his missteps? Evan Turner, God love him. He's never apologized to me once for anything. And I hope he never does because <laughs> I love the relationship with that. <laughs> That'd be super uncomfortable. <laughs> Since, since um, overcoming your your battle with depression, have you found that you 
have it's been easier for you to develop close relationships with people? Yeah, I think for me it was it's I, I don't know if it's like the depression thing or more of just like the insecurity, which but they, they probably feed into each other. Um, but sure. I just it, it, I, I've always been someone who who doesn't think he's worthy of of blank whatever that blank is. Um, and so I'm never the guy that reaches out to people. I was never the guy that initiated conversations and all that kind of stuff. And I've kind of worked through that. Uh, maybe in, in working through my depression, I've also worked through that and they go hand in hand and all that. But, but yeah, now I'm definitely at a spot where I, I, I do talk to people more and I open up and I'm extroverted. And I actually call people, which is wild. That's, that's something I never did. I, I, was, I was terrified to call. I, would, I wouldn't even call and order pizza. Um, up until like three years ago, I wouldn't even order oh, really? pizza. Like if I wanted pizza, there were times where if I wanted pizza, if I wanted pizza delivered to my place and I was by myself, I would text like my brother. I'd be like, dude, can you order pizza for me and have it sent to my house? Wow. This was like, this was like before ordering on the internet was a thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would like text my brother. I'd be like, dude, I don't want to talk to this. Like I'm scared to talk to this guy on the phone. Like, it's, a, it's a freaking pizza. What do you mean you're scared? I was like, just don't ask. Just please just order me this pizza. Um, which is Thank funny God the pizza on, but, emoji yeah, did not exist during that time. Man. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. The uh, yeah, it's a different world. These kids, these kids have it easy these days. <laughs> you, you talked about finding your place in the world when um, your career ended. We, we've talked a lot on this show about um, about athletes finding. Per- I mean, our, our whole premise is we talk to people about things that have nothing to do with sports and athletes, and and we've talked to a lot of them about the struggle of after their career was over, what do I do now? And from your experience, yeah. both at the, and I think we underrate the college um, aspect of this too, that a lot of people who have been playing organized sports at a hyper focused level now for 12, 13, 14 years, have it just completely disappear overnight. Not to mention the pros who uh, either did or did not meet their financial and career aspirations. How do you, process that the difficult um transition into the post uh sports world and and do you have any advice for people at either the college or pro level for how to try to do it yeah um it it was not easy for me at all uh Mm -hmm. i i i think part of what led to my depression in the first place was I was very much raised to believe that I was exceptional. Um, and I, I love my parents to death and they did a great job and they're probably listening to this, uh, because they still Google my name, um, for like once a week and just listen to everything. Like they're the kind of parents <laughs> that like want to, want to argue with people on Twitter who say bad things about me and I have to tell them to calm down because it's, it's not that big of a deal. Just let it go. Mom and dad and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I love them to death, but they, they very much were parents who, you know, from, from the time, I mean, my mom and dad will still brag to people that I could read when I was like four years old. Um, and they're like, my son was, you know, super bright and he was a great athlete and he was this and that. And that was awesome growing up. Cause you felt like you were special and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's like, I'm going to save the world. This is, this is my destiny is I, I could read before all my classmates. I hit puberty before them. I was, I was dunking in games in junior high and I'm, uh, just on down the line. I was like, I am destined to be something really special. And then you get to Ohio State and you don't even get off the bench and then you don't even know what you're majoring in. You kind of just like pick a major and kind of coast through it. And then you get spit out into the world and, and don't really have a job. Um, and and it was very, very hard to kind of adjust to that. And I think a lot of athletes are that way where you, you are so competitive and so 
you're, they're probably brought up the same way where you're, where you're led to believe like I, I am the reason I'm so I'm here where I am today is because I am, am better than everyone almost. Like it, it, it might not be like a, maybe it is an egotistical thing, but like you almost feel like you're like a chosen one, you know, like why am I so good at basketball? Why am I so good at this? It's because I'm destined for something. And then the world says, actually, no, you're not. You were destined to just get a scholarship to play basketball and that's it. We don't care about you after this, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and that's a very, very hard reality to accept. Uh, so I'm not really sure I do have advice. I mean, I, my advice is just like, you just, you, you have to, my, my advice would be this, enjoy the the process of your life and not like, don't, don't do things for the result. Um, and what I mean by that is I was always raised to pursue results, to pursue when you're in school, you want to get the A pluses no matter how, how you go about getting them. Um, and, and, it, and it's better. I, I always had the mindset that like, it's better to get straight A's and kind of coast through school doing it that way than to actually challenge yourself and learn things and, um, you know, come out of everything, a better person, a smarter person or whatever. And, and maybe you got B's along the way, or you got a B minus in a class, but you learned a lot in that class. Um, and I feel like that's kind of carried over into life. And that's what I've sort of learned is like, rather than trying to put forth this image of a guy who has it all together and who is super successful and who has it all figured out, learn to like enjoy this process of learning who I am and, and how I get through life and what success is to me now in this new world that I live in where, you know, no one, no one cares how many points I scored or, or what my report card said in 10th grade and all that kind of stuff. So um, that, that would be my advice is like, stop worrying about, what people think of you, what, what that end result is, what the, um, what the thing that you're, you're striving to achieve and instead just focus on like learning and getting better and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know if that's kind of a hokey answer, but no, look, no, I think, I, th I think it's perfect. I, I, I think even, I think beyond sports, people, adults, particularly a lot of depression and self-loathing comes from comparison. And it's one of the most, dangerous things you can do is to compare your what your level of success looks like to someone else because there always will be someone with more money or a, a job you want um or someone who seems to have it together but we're all battling our own demons yeah we, we've seen high profile cases of athletes um like royce white comes to mind as someone who had a very public battle yeah. between his team and how to handle a situation that, that everyone kind of knew about, but no one knew how to deal with it correctly. So we've seen, even when it's addressed verbally uh, and openly, it's not always going to be something that's easily solved. It, putting on your, yeah. your analyst hat here, what do you want um, uh, professional and college uh, big-time programs to be doing differently to address mental health in sports? Uh, where, where would you make some changes if you could? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I really thought about. Um, I guess it's kind of hard because the the way you the first road to like getting help is to acknowledge is to publicly maybe not publicly maybe not to the world but to like just somebody else to 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 tell them what you're going through because like I said I I, I was I was very good at hiding what I was going through to to my teammates and coaches and all that kind of stuff so. Um, my my first answer is like have resources available like have, like teams should have 
you know, people to, for, for guys to talk to. And I'm sure the NBA does, but I'm not really sure if, if such things exist among on college campuses. I mean, I know there are people you talk to, but I don't know how prevalent it really is. And, and if, um, and, and there's definitely in sports like this, this idea that you, you can't be weak and, and you need to be tough and just mm-hmm. kind of tough it out. And, uh, maybe, maybe do a better job of dealing with that. Like, walking the fine line because part of it though is is, is like kind of, there are there are situations where you do need to have like mental toughness and just get over it but there's also like serious mental illness and trying to figure out like where that line is um is something that I don't think college basketball coaches are necessarily good at and it would be helpful if there were other people maybe around the program who were, were trained better to, to identify these things but I mean it all it, unfortunately it all starts with with the the quote-unquote patient themselves like if, if if you're going through this you have to tell someone that's the only way to, to get help and the only way to, to seek out help um but yeah once that's done i don't know i, I just it, it's it's hard to just have like a cure-all solution to all this um i think just, right. just empathy empathy goes a long way uh just being able to say like i i don't really understand what you're going through but I just want you to know that whatever it means to be here for you, I'm here for you. Um, and, and that, that's really all I wanted. I mean, I, my family, when they found out were, uh, and, and they found out before the public, like I, they kind of saw me when I got super fat and they're like, wait a second, what's going on here? Um, and they just tried to fix it. And they're like, what can we do? What can we buy you nice things that cheer you up? Can we, um, you know, should we take you on a vacation? Would that cheer you up and all that stuff? And honestly, like what I want to say is it's like, no, all all I really want you to do is just be like, I, I, I'm here for you. I don't really know what that means, but I'm here for you. If you want, if if you want a shoulder to cry on, I'm here for you. If you want someone to talk, I'm here for you. Um, and I think that just goes a long way, but, um, yeah, I'm not really sure what the answer is, unfortunately. And, uh, I guess that's, that's why we as a society are where we're at now. We're like, no one really knows how to talk about it or address it or all that stuff, but at least we're having conversations. So I guess that's a good start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we applaud you for for telling your story. I mean, especially you know, you know, again here, you've already kind of been really candid with it. We know it's hard to kind of keep dredging it up. And I also think just your your comments about just and your perspectives on you know the the sports world in general are helpful. And I think, like you said, first of all, if you could just give everyone your cell phone to reach out with you for your advice personally, then that would be great. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, you know, that's, that's no, but I but I I think. I think when people have come out and, and now you know there, there's there's a Googleable record of um, you know whether it's yourself or other athletes you know yeah. telling more of their stories, maybe that does lead some people to at least say, hey, other people are digging their way out of this. I'm gonna call a local mental health professional or talk to a family member or something. I think so. I mean, I, I definitely. I definitely do that with other people, like other things in my life. Like I, I, I get on Wikipedia all the time and look up celebrity stories and just read like where they were born, how they came up and, and, and then kind of maybe not compare it to my life, but kind of use it as inspiration. It's like, okay, so this guy wasn't really that successful until he was like 50, I guess, you know, I shouldn't be down on myself cause you know, whatever. Um, so there are stories, yeah, that definitely inspire me. It's, it's really weird for me to think of myself as, a, a role model, I guess that that kind of freaks me out too. Um, and, and that kind of is is just another um, manifestation of my insecurity and my my belief that I'm a nobody and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that that was part of what freaked me out too. Like people, when, even even now, when people are like, "Yeah, man, I I really look up to the way you did this." Whatever it is, I'm like, "Really, me? You look up to me? Why?" 
<laughs> you know, like I, uh, and, and I, I, I kind of say that self-deprecating in a self-deprecating way, but it's probably unhealthy to keep thinking of myself as that. And I should probably embrace, uh, the fact that I could help people more, but, um, I don't know. It's, it's something, and I, I should say this too, like, this is something that I'm going to carry with me my whole life. Like, I don't, I, I don't want to suggest that I'm cured um, because I don't really think you can ever be cured of this. I, I would liken it to having a rope uh, tied around your ankle and you're in a, you're, you're, you're in a pit and there's just a guy down there with you that keeps pulling on it and trying to keep you down in the pit with him. And I think I've climbed out of the pit and I've run away from the pit and I'm like a couple miles away from the pit but there's still that rope around my ankle and there's still the guy I can kind of like every so often feel a tug. I can sort of feel the tug. Um, and that, I think that's going to be like that the rest of my life. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I don't really know. Um, what, what else to, I, I, I guess I don't know what else to say. After that. <laughs> well, no, look, man, you said a ton. We, we appreciate you coming on. We would tell everybody to follow you. Yeah. I'm at club choice. And I should mention that, um, this is, if, if this is your first experience with me, I promise this is not me. Usually, this is a, <laughs> no. I'm very much a guy who does not take things seriously at all. So this is kind of a um, yeah. This is this is kind of a departure for me. So I promise, if, if you're listening to this, you're like, man, what a what a drab guy. He just like you know sucks the life out of things. I promise that is not who I am. So um, I'm sorry to sorry to do that to your show. <laughs> yeah, one one quick look at the work on your ringer or the podcast. You you know you, you do with them, whether it's with Tate or contributing to uh, Ringer U. Uh, and they, they will be set straight. Or, hey, look, they got to go watch yeah. Mr. Rainmaker, which I got to say. Watch Mr. I really, Rainmaker, yeah. I really, love you. I really love you coming out and speaking about mental health, uh, but it'll always be my second favorite thing about you behind Mr. Rainmaker. Mr. Rainmaker, that's fine. <laughs> that was, that's, uh, that's a good legacy to have, I suppose. Making real trick quick, shots. Was... <laughs> real, real, quick, uh, real quick story on that. So when that came out, I was mm-hmm. working with a sports brand, and I pitched – Let's do this. They were like, we want to do this video for Dwight Howard. They just signed a deal with Dwight Howard. And I was like, let's do a follow-up to that. We'll call Mark. He's, he's eligibility is over this year. We're going to have like him and Dwight go head-to-head and do like a sequel video. And they said no. So just one more reason to hate Dwight Howard, Mark. Wow. Wow. As, as if I needed any other reasons. This was, That would have been great, too. That was like the Mr. Raymond. Listen, I'm not saying that I started it. I'm not saying that at all. Um but if other people want to say it, I'll certainly allow it. But that Mr. Rainmaker was like kind of the star of the, the trick shot videos. Like the dude, perfect guys kind of came about after that. Um, and, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying I, that, that, that they, you know, copied off of me or anything. I'm not saying I invented trick shot videos, but there was kind of a wave like, yeah, in the late, in the around 2009 through like 2013, those like that window of, of years where, trick shots were like really hot that was like the thing everyone was making these wild trick shot videos so that would have been that would have played really well back then yeah but the joke it was it was like the looks into the camera the the hustle the sliding on the stomach you you yeah yeah yeah, you nailed it it was great (laughs) (laughs) by the way by the way i did i my buddy and i my buddy who came up with the idea for that video um he's like a he's a hair metal fan and he, he heard the song mr rainmaker by warrant and he was like He's like, we should do something with this, with the make a video. I was like, I don't know, it's kind of stupid, but it ended up working out or whatever. He and I, uh, we we did film a sequel to it. We never released it because it ended up being terrible. But we we filmed a sequel set to uh, let the bodies hit the floor, and oh. um, 
it was me on an eight-foot rim playing against a bunch of second graders, and I was just dunking on them and pushing them around. <laughs> and the footage from that, the lost footage, I don't even know what happened to that, but we, we, we spent an entire day, like, we, we uh, my, my family friends had, had like eight year old kid and, and we recruited all him and all of his friends to come just let me dunk on him and kick him in the face and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know what happened to the footage of that, but it ended up like we, we made a video and it ended up not being that funny. So we didn't release it, but the footage of that is, is out there somewhere. And I'm, I'm going to try to find it. It's, it. If you find it's that never, it's never too late. If you find that permanent invite to release that with just not sports. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. We will Keep put it out. Yeah. However, however, however poor it might be, we will release it for you and love every minute of it. And we are back in the sports world, and sometimes uh, by our own Adam Lard, people get accused of being distractions just because they like something or wear their hair in a certain way, Adam. And on this show... Inappropriate context. Inappropriate. <laughs> you, you understand what I was saying. And on this show, we don't just uh, we don't just uh, let people be themselves. We 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 celebrate it. We praise it. We we embrace distractions and what makes us interesting. So every week we go out uh, and tell you what's been distracting us. So right now I'm going to start with Gareth. Gareth, what's distracting you? Adam, I'm going to throw this one at you. Uh, This week, The New Yorker published a fascinating profile of George Strait. Um, A guy whose music I kind of don't know until you start to read this. And you're like, oh, he sang that song and that song. And that's kind of the point that they make in this article. That as a country singer... He's had an unprecedented, lengthy, unprecedentedly long career, and he has had success over the decades. But if you ask any fan, um, they can't name a favorite album because he's basically he only sings hits. He's known as the country Sinatra, if you will. So I would recommend anyone to read this article. It was written by Khalifa Saneh. It's in the July 24th issue. It's called very humorously Hat Trick uh, because it talks about he was a hat country singer. Uh, Adam, do you have a favorite George Strait song for me to go looking for? This is a tough one. So I people ask me about old school country because they know I like country. I didn't adopt my uh, country preference until I was in my late 20s. I lived in Green Bay, and there are certain things you pick up in Green Bay. Uh, drinking and country music. So <laughs> I, I can't say... Um, really, I'm more new country than I am old country, and really the only George Strait references I'm familiar with are the references that new country artists make about George Strait in their songs, so I do not have a favorite George Strait song, but I've considered 
I, I really have thought about listening to more old country because um, new country, as we've addressed before, has gotten to the point, and I mean mainstream new country, has gotten to the point of being so cliched um, with the big trucks and um, the, the same cultural references that you find in, in rap with their cliches you find in country. So I'm looking to embrace some old country. Ask me next episode and maybe I'll have a favorite George Strait song for you. As far as George Strait, the man, I know very little. I know that he had kids, but there's there's no mention of like family or a wife or anything like that, or just even that like he never married. I, I think that I'd be curious to know what was off limits uh, for the piece. At the same time, it does a fantastic job of putting him in the context and country music the business and radio and the importance of it within that industry. And that's the best part of the article. And Brad, to your point, it talks about how George Strait like inspired all these guys like Garth Brooks, but then they took parts of his shtick and made it wildly different and wildly successful. And now Adam, to your point about new country, there's a radio program director who refers to, straight and his generation as like the hat country singers and now they've given way to the cap country singers like kenny chesney and all those guys who don't wear cowboy hats who come out wearing a beat up trucker's hat and that's the new look and feel of country music so good article highly recommended i it led to more conversation on this podcast than i ever would have thought so enjoy Okay. Thanks, uh, sir. Adam, w- distract us, buddy. Uh, so, Brad, you got to meet my Uncle Howard yesterday. Indeed. Good uh, guy. My uncle, my uncle Howard on, on my mom's side, he is currently, uh, he's, he's a retired shop teacher. He's done a number of other professions over the years, uh, but retired as a, as a teacher and uh is doing some traveling he is traveling let's see they've been um through from arizona all the way to memphis up into st louis he's here in chicago for a week and then he's on the road for another two months touring um every museum he can find in the country which is a little bit inspiring because i can't remember the last time i've taken a vacation but interesting thing is he has a tesla which i didn't realize that he had until yesterday when i mentioned um that i would we could just take an uber to the game and he insisted we take the tesla because it is self-driving uh that self-driving cars i'm not sure if i'm comfortable with this technology yet um talk about being distracted my uncle is showing my uncle is showing me he's in where i'm he's driving or the car is driving i'm riding shotgun and he's showing me pictures on his phone while the car drives itself i i don't i don't know if i'm ready for this technology and he is a very forward-thinking guy he bought the tesla uh, my mom asked him why did you buy the car and he said, I, on, I bought it only because I want to push the technology forward, which is a pretty impressive answer. But self-driving cars, 
I'm not sure, guys. Um, I'm all in. I've often said <laughs> that if I won the lottery, I would keep my Honda Fit with 80,000 miles on it, but by, like, hire a driver. Um, so, yeah, if I, I, I've also been bringing this up to people who are like, man, we're at peak TV, this is peak content, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, just wait till you eliminate driving from everybody's life. You thought people were consuming content now? It, this is the tip of the iceberg, bro. I mean, this is going to get, it's going to get crazy. So, yeah, sign me up. If I never drive again starting tomorrow, I'm in. Go, Howard. Oh, and if he wants to go to any any museum in New York and he makes his way out here, have him give me a call. I have thoughts. Uh, okay, yeah. I'm going to do mine real Amen. quick. I got I got a breaking distraction, by the way. Like, In fact, I was looking at this while Adam was talking, and I was just was, I was trying to figure out if it's real. Uh, there is a movie called 9-11, the movie. It's about 9-11. Charlie oh. Sheen is the star. <laughs> yeah, that happened. That's real. Really? Uh, yeah, no. I, what uh, could go wrong? Is, <laughs> isn't is it basically him doing his conspiracy theories writ large? I I don't know. I I, I have to watch this trailer in a little bit, but I'm shocked. I mean, I'm shocked. Like, remember, remember when Paul Greengrass wanted to do like a really serious dramatization of of United 93 and and that was like oh is this is this something that we should be doing and now Charlie Sheen's in a movie literally called 911 <laughs> Yeah wow well, wasn't it Chris Rock that said we're a couple of years away from like the 911 memorial sale you know like <laughs> Yeah I mean uh all right well on to stuff that's less scandalous than Charlie Sheen um let's talk about the OJ pardon um, <laughs> I, I don't want to get too into it. I think that, the you know, a lot of people were talking the last few days about how, like, even, like, OJ can't do anything without it being a total circus. Because even one of the parole, <laughs> or not, he wasn't pardoned. Sorry, he was paroled. So one of the parole board people uh, wore a chief's tie. Uh, <laughs> did, did you guys see that? No. Yes. So, like, one of the dudes who said, yes, he's paroled, was wearing an NFL tie at the ceremony. And people were, like, both horrified and laughing at that. Um, but I just want to ask <laughs> you guys. Seriously, dude? Yeah. I mean, I, this on. is why no one, trusts, no one trusts any institutions at all. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's pretty frivolous, but it's still, like, you know, of course. Of course that that would happen at OJ's stupid parole board hearing. I just want to say this. Let let's let OJ back into the sports world, okay? And here's my here's my plan. I think OJ Simpson should be the new GM of the Knicks. And I mean this completely <laughs> sincerely. Wow. I don't think they could get any worse than they've been except maybe if they brought Isaiah back. <laughs> just let I mean just let the Knicks like if they're a if they're a, a, a pile of old tires Let's just let's just douse that shit in gas and just light the match right now. Just bring OJ in, <laughs> let him run it. He's been around big time programs. He's he's super uh, comfortable with media, <laughs> and <laughs> which I just like. You know, it's like the movie Touching the Void when the guy breaks his leg on the mountain and he's like, "I knew I couldn't crawl out, so I crawled down into the abyss to try and find a way out." 
James Dolan, down, bro. Crawl down. Or as the Simpsons said, well, I think dig up, stupid. <laughs> I I think uh, you can say goodbye to the New York's New York Knicks cheerleaders if that happened. A a team wide resignation. Oh, I thought you meant. OJ's I thought you meant. He, I, li- I literally thought you meant he was going to like murder them. <laughs> like Adam. Oh no. <laughs> I'm. I'm going to give them credit enough to know it's coming and get out while they can. The only thing is, can you just imagine, can you just imagine if they found like a new, like a, the real killer? <laughs> you know, like... Oh, that's what, that's what I was going to say. After nine years in jail where he hasn't been able to look for the real killer, he can <laughs> resume that search. Right, guys? It's, this is like... People are dead. Like, people's children are dead. Their mothers are dead. Their father, like, and, but, my God, that is funny. <laughs> it's nine years of the killer just going free. It's just, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be the, that'll be the next documentary. OJ on the hunt for the killer. If he did it. <laughs> so. uh, I may or may not, Adam, have done a little digging in the Nevada Department of Corrections to try and get a sub- official uh, media request to the OJ camp. And uh, stay tuned. We'll see. <laughs> We're going to give it a shot. <laughs> we, we have until October. <laughs> All right. So that is our show for this week. Let's end with some shout outs. I'm going to give a shout out to Mark Titus. Um, again, great discussion. Really appreciate him coming back on, revisiting this conversation and opening up like he did. Uh, go check out his work on The Ringer. It's great. Go check out his podcast on The Ringer Podcast Network. Um, he does Teed Up with, with Tate and uh, also makes appearances on Ringer U and some other shows over there, as well as the BS Report from time to time, or excuse me, the Bill Simmons Podcast now uh, from time to time. Uh, I'd like to give a shout-out to the Chicago Red Stars. Thanks very much for having us to the game. Uh, it was a great 2-1 to one game. Uh, great hospitality and thanks for having us out on, on, a, on I had never been to Toyota Park before beautiful park uh, they put us up in a very nice suite it was it was a great day yeah Adam nice usual. And, and as usual as usual I'd like to give a shout out to my boy Uzi Def Jeff Little Swanee Meech Ron Mack and my other cousin, Ron. Love those guys. Thanks for all they do. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty.